the words of Psalm 19 from the lips of David. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Lee Trevino, the famous golfing legend, was famous for the following words of advice. He said, if you're out on the golf course and there's a lightning storm and you're afraid of lightning, reach in your bag and grab the one iron and hold it up as high as you can. And people wondered, what are you talking about? He said, not even God can hit a one iron. (laughs) If you're a golfer, you know what I'm talking about. There are some things we simply cannot do, some battles we simply cannot win, Why try and master something that cannot be mastered, right? Like a one iron. Which brings us to St. Paul in Romans chapter 7 today. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love to look at it with you for the next few minutes. Uh, Paul is on a spiritual journey of three movements this morning, I want to point out. Three different themes. One in chapter 7, the day the law became real for Paul. The struggle that was still real for Paul after coming to Christ. And the victory over sin that became Paul's. The day, the struggle, the victory. So the day the law became real for Paul. Let's look at that. I want to back up prior to our readings today and see the power of the law to reveal sin in our lives. Look at chapter 7, verse 7. Paul says this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? It's bad, throw it out, we don't need it. By no means, meganoita in Greek. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it's like to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. Now, is that right? Don't we all know Paul? He's our patron saint, right? Grew up in a Jewish household, formed in Judaism, I mean, he's the guy who said, I'm the Pharisee of Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, this guy was good. He knew the law. He learned how to uh, understand the law under one of the greatest uh, scholars of the ancient world, Gamaliel, the famous rabbi. He knew the law. So what's he saying there when he says, for I would have not have known what it's like to covet if the law didn't say you shall not covet? Well, Did he suddenly find the 10th law? He had forgotten the 10th one until one day? No. It was always in his mind. But here's the difference. It was on his lips, and it was in his mind, but there was a day when it seeped down into his heart, when it traveled from his head to his heart. And Paul looked to the power of the law, and it convicted him of a sin he didn't even know he was committing, The law pierced his heart and drilled down into his soul. You see, before this time, we we believe that Paul had used the law as a mechanism for righteousness, okay? A checklist to make him feel better about himself, to puff himself up with pride. I'm such a great Pharisee, I keep the whole of the law. But when it got down to his heart, it went from puffing him up to tearing him down, to humbling him before God. I imagine Paul's prayers were a lot like the uh, Pharisee in Luke 18. Remember that, that story about Jesus? He says there were two men that went to pray. One was a Pharisee outside the temple. And the Pharisee played, prayed like this. God, I thank you, Lord, that I am not like other people in this church today. Cheaters and sinners and adulterers. 
And I'm certainly not like that tax collector in the back over there. No, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income during stewardship time. Paul probably prayed a prayer like that at one time. St. Paul's, uh, here at our St. Paul's, we've been saying the, uh, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, throughout Advent to prepare us for Christmas, throughout Lent to prepare us for Easter. I think the law still has an amazing place in the lives of Christians. Paul says he wouldn't have known that coveting was bad until the law convicted his heart and told him that. So the law's good. David says this morning, he said the law of God is perfect. It revives the soul. It was meant to give us parameters to know what a right relationship with the Father looks like and what a right relationship with the people of God looks like. The law's good. David said it's more to be desired than gold, much more than even fine gold. It's sweeter than honey, even honey dripping directly from the comb, he says. So the law and its purposes are good. And here's what it does for Paul. Chapter 7, verse 7. Paul says, What then shall we say that the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So the law is good because it reveals the human heart before God. And in that process, it totally humbles us. Look at verses 8 and following. Paul says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandments, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. If you have children and you tell them, do not go into that road, what does it do? It is a rousing sin within them. They want more than anything to go into that road. St. Augustine says in his confessions, there was a farmer that lived nearby and he had a big old sign that says, do not enter my farm, no trespassing. He and a bunch of other boys had to climb the pear tree. And though he said, I had better, better pears at home and we were not hungry, we took his pears and threw them to the pigs. Because the law aroused sin within him, right? And Paul says that the sin that was particular to him was covetousness. Now, we don't use a lot of King Jimmy English anymore, do we? Um, not many of us. The these and the thous and the thines, we pretty much adopted the 21st century language. But that word covet is something we just don't have a good English replacement for, do we? It's not only greed, it's not only want, God knows we want things, but it's to have that cavernous hole that's empty in the heart and to fill it with things other than God's goodness and grace. To, to look at God in the face and say to God, you are not enough for me. I need something else to satisfy my deepest desires. In fact, it's very close to idolatry. Coveting is asking something in this world to satisfy what only God was meant to satisfy. For Paul... It was morality, goodness, being a Pharisee, checking off the checklist of righteousness. In fact, Mike Iaconelli says a lot of Christians still do that today. I think he started Youth Specialties. I know he started the, the Wittenberg Door, a satire magazine on Christianity. Um, Iaconelli said this, even religious people like us love to hide behind religion. They love the rules of religion more than they love Jesus sometimes. And with practice, condemners 
let rules become more important than the spiritual life. Isn't that where Paul found himself? Checklist of the rules to feel good about himself, and he forgot it's all about a relationship. I think that's why Jesus intensifies the law in chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel to, to let us know that we are convicted before the Lord. You know, I used to get up here and say the Decalogue years ago as my checklist of, of goodness and righteousness and morality, you know, but in the fifth chapter, Jesus hit me in the heart, punched me in the gut. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, quoting the law of Moses, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. Check, 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 check. I've never murdered anybody. Praise be to God. Thanks, thanks for me. But then he goes on to say, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable of judgment. Jesus drills down and convicts the human heart who hasn't been angry. Then you go on. You shall not commit adultery, Jesus says. Check. 27 years of marriage, never cheated on Leslie Jeffords. I'm good with that. I'm good with God. I'm good with everybody. But I say to you, Jesus says, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Who hasn't been lustful? Who hasn't been angry? Who hasn't coveted things more than God? Jesus drills down into the human heart. Leave no wiggle room for any of us in this church that none is righteous, none is holy. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All we like sheep have gone astray. And when that happens to Paul, look what happens in verse 10. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. It killed me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and it killed me, Paul says. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. See what he's saying? He was spiritually undone by the convicting of the law. It slew me. It killed me. It exposed me. Paul realized how far his heart was from God, and it killed him. Verse 13, Paul says, The commandment showed me that I was sinful beyond all measure. So that was verses 1 to 13. This is the pre-converted Paul before he knew Jesus Christ. Verses 14 and following, though, start to go into the present tense. This is who Paul is now. And you'll notice this. Notice that he's in Christ. The law slayed his sin. But verses 15 to 20. For I do not understand my own actions, Paul says. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. Look at verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. I can't hit the one iron to save my life. So now... Verse 20, if I do what I do not do, want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that lives within me. I'm in Jesus. I desire the good, but I don't have the ability to do it. Isn't that how life is sometimes, even for Christians? C.S. Lewis said, no man knows how bad he is until he tries to be good. The good I want to do, I don't seem to do. Do you know that one of the most popular hashtags on the internet now is uh, hashtag the struggle is real. A lot of memes have that at the top, the struggle is real, very popular. For Paul, even after being a Christian, the struggle was real. 
I wish the church of Jesus Christ, the people of God, you and me, could be as transparent about our sins and struggles as Paul is right here. What a fresh new wind it would be for the church to to understand and to to say to the unbelieving world that we still struggle, that we're not going to wear the mask of the Pharisee. We're not going to use the law of God as a checklist of righteousness, but we're going to be humbled. We need to tell the unbelieving world what Well, the great slave trader John Newton once said years ago, the guy who became an Anglican priest and wrote Amazing Grace, he said right before he died, he couldn't preach anymore. He said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very well. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. What a refreshing win that would be for the church. You mean that Christians still struggle after coming to Christ? Absolutely. We struggle with anger, some of us swear, there are dysfunctional families, some of us don't like to get up for worship some Sundays, some of us don't love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, minds, and souls, and in fact, most of us don't on most occasions. We all have, all the time having those idols rear their ugly heads, only to have to chop the head off by repenting and returning to the Lord. We struggle. And the struggle's real. And people need to know that. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. One day, some Pharisees came to Jesus in Matthew's gospel. And they, they came to his disciples first and said, Why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus overheard the conversation and enters in, and he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He said, You Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The church is a hospital for sinners. Paul, when he was convicted of his covetousness, realized that the law had killed his pride. The struggle was real, though, which drove him to Jesus, which is our last point, the victory that Paul understands at the end. Galatians chapter 3. Go home and read this. Uh, Paul says, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law is our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified through faith. That word guardian, pedagogos, pedagogy, teacher, tutor, one who takes us to school. The law was continually taking us to school to realize our failures and shortcomings so that we would learn to look for faith in Christ as our salvation. That's what Paul sees The law humbled himself, drilled down to his heart, so that he had only one option, which is to fall on his knees before the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. It is through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, that's his hope. That's his salvation. Man, he was dead, killed, slain by the law and yet alive in Christ. Jesus heals Paul. Jesus is Paul's righteousness. 
Jesus is Paul's victory. Jesus lived the perfect life and under obedience to the law that Paul could not live. I can't hit a one iron to save my life. But he also died the perfect death and assumed the wrath of God and died the death that Paul deserved so that Paul might be free. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. You know, the struggle's still real. Verses 1 to 13, the struggle was still real. But here's the difference. Before Christ, we're waging war that we cannot win. After Christ, we're still waging war, but it's a war we cannot lose because we are in Christ Jesus. You know, I sometimes think of our Weak and feeble attempts at morality and legalism during Lent, you know, I'm going to give up smoking, I'm going to give up drinking, I'm going to give up broccoli, I'm going to give up cauliflower, whatever it may be. Um, Bishop Allison used to call that teeth grit in Christianity. Just going to try harder to overcome this thing in my life. It never works. What we need to do is draw to the face of Jesus. He's the victory. It's not religion and self-righteousness that God wants. It's a relationship with one who's won the battle. Martin Luther sums it up in A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and we'll end with this. 1529, he wrote these words. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth is named from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. I think Trevino's wrong. God can't hit a one iron. Jesus can hit a one iron. In fact, he can do whatever you need for him to do. The struggle's real. Jesus and his victory is even more powerful and more wonderful. So, remember to be transparent. Remember to read the law as a way to convict the heart. When you're driven to your knees and you let go of all the pride, remember who's on the other side of the fence. Christ Jesus, it is he. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the law. We thank you for the struggle that's real. We thank you for Jesus who overcomes for us, who lived the life we could not live, and in him you see us as perfect and righteous before your throne. So, dear Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for all your blessings. Please, in this season of Lent, in these last few weeks, convict our hearts to let go of all the idols that we've created and to seek your face above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.